Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. When you think of movies, you think of the glamour and excitement of Hollywood, California. But the historical roots of filmmaking in America did not begin on the West Coast. In fact, the industry got its start at the end of the 19th century with the construction of Thomas Edison's Black Maria, the first motion picture studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Film production companies began to establish themselves in New York and Chicago, and when the industry began to expand, movie makers headed south to Florida. Today we're going to discuss the history of Florida and films with Caroline Brader Watts, who's had a long career in the arts, spanning radio, theater, and film. She is the executive director and co-founder of Radio on the Lake Theater. And later we'll talk with Academy Award-winning filmmaker, producer, and director Andrew Hevia, who cut his teeth in the movie-making business right here in South Florida. We begin with Caroline, who explains how Florida made its mark in the history of filmmaking, which includes a few gory details. Actually, Jacksonville was kind of the heart of that. California, yes, we're, it's synonymous with film today, but there are actually a couple of different locations that were sort of vying for that title back in the early part of the, of the uh, 20th century. Around 1911 is really when Jacksonville sort of got on the map as a film town. For obvious reasons, they needed a climate where they could have sunshine all the time, where they didn't have to worry about snow, um, where they could film outdoors at all times of the year, and that would be not a problem. So Florida made a lot of sense. And there, of course, are still film productions going on even today in the state of Florida, but it somehow missed out on being the capital. But a lot of productions since that time have been made in Florida. It still seems to be a go-to place no matter what. It's a weird place. A lot of weird stuff yeah, happens in Florida. Exactly. So it's still attractive to people who want to make interesting stories. Uh, why not make those in Florida? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 I remember, you know, not that long ago there were tax incentives and all kinds right. of stuff and I remember, you know, um people who were being um taking filmmaking classes here, mm -hmm. there was this real big push to not only were you educated in filmmaking here in Florida, but they were doing all they can to keep you here mm -hmm. as a filmmaker. You know, there's so many I can think even 5 years ago, 6 years, 7 years ago, I remember Miami was the hotbed for telenovelas. That was where a lot of those were being filmed. A lot of work came down here. There was an institute, I, and I, the name escapes me at the moment, but there was a big institute that they built in West Palm Beach specifically for film. That has closed since that time. Yeah, Florida continues to be a place that people would like to make film. We had that uh, series on Netflix, um, Bloodline, that was very successful for a period of time. I don't live in Florida anymore, so I'm not around it as much as I used to be, but it sounds to me like that industry, Florida's kind of dropped off the map in terms of filmmaking, but it has a very, very rich history. Yes, absolutely. Now, Florida has also played an integral role in filmmaking in other areas as well, because it was mm -hmm. here the first slasher film was created by the man everyone is dubbed as the Gormeister, and that is Herschel Gordon Lewis. 
Can you tell us a little bit about Herschel Gordon Lewis? Well, I have to tell you first the funny story of how I met him. I actually knew him (laughs) and knew him fairly well in the last years. He he passed away a few years ago, but, you know, he was living in Florida. He was living in Fort Lauderdale in the last years of his life. And I was working on a radio show at another public radio station, and the guest was a guy named Herschel Gordon Lewis. And I was engineering the show, and I went, hmm. Herschel Gordon Lewis, isn't that a funny coincidence that this man who was a direct mail marketing entrepreneur had the same name as a guy who made these really low budget slasher films? But I thought that certainly couldn't be the same guy, right? Well, turns out it was. It was Herschel Gordon Lewis, the man who made Blood Feast and 10,000 Maniacs and all of these incredibly gory, low budget films that are now really cult films. But he had sort of transitioned into this career as a direct mail marketing guru. So, you know, when I knew him, I don't really know what his life was like when he was making these films. I dare say it wasn't as opulent as it was (laughs) when he discovered direct mail marketing. But um, he lived in a beautiful, I remember visiting him. He had a beautiful townhouse on the beach. He lived there with his wife. He was a charming man. Um, I did a little retrospective of him at a local community college and people turned out and loved, loved his films. I will tell you, Mia, I'm not someone who loves his films. I thought he was a very nice guy and enjoyed knowing him, but his films, I guess the biggest credit you can give to Herschel Gordon Lewis is that he was one of the early independent filmmakers. Um, yeah. In the 19, early 1960s, you know, he that was when the studio system was breaking down. So you could have more of those smaller independent companies. Roger Corman is a really good example of that in Hollywood. But this guy, you know, he was a former literature professor at the time. He was a part-time advertising executive and that's how he got into direct mail. But he decided that the key to his success was going to be a four letter word. And that four letter word was a gore. You're all invited to a centennial celebration. What they were celebrating wasn't important, and it sounded like a heap of fun until 2,000 maniacs crazed for carnage started bathing an entire town in pulsing human blood. You'll see six young strangers doomed to slaughter by an ancient curse. There came an awful sound. And from his lips there came an awful sound. Brutal, evil, ghastly beyond belief. You'll see the most diabolical device ever contrived, designed solely for assassination by a town of madmen, insane with bloodlust. He was the Gormeister. He made these incredibly low budget films that me, I think you and I can be honest and say terrible acting. (laughs) Terrible acting. Yes. You know, people who couldn't really act, but probably could be gotten for these films fairly affordably. And yeah. just showing every aspect of, you know, cutting off limbs and tearing out tongues and, and, all and brains, brains splattered on the floor. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> I watched that and I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Bad lighting, bad makeup, yeah. bad yeah. acting. But part of you was fascinating. I mean, for somebody, if you think about the 60s now, I think we're kind of numb to some things. But yeah. that just was not heard of back then. Yeah. 
you know, you, you didn't see the actual act of like brains seeping through your fingers oh. and, and, and the sheer amount of blood that, that was, you know, shown in this, in this kind of film. So I could see where it would be fascinating on one end, but just like, oh my God, are you kidding me on another end? Again, not only was the studio system breaking down, but the censorship was going away as well. So you could have, you could actually exhibit films that had nudity or films that had swear words or films that had gore in them. And that just kept building and building, obviously, as the 60s went on. The young lady who starred in uh, Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs was a, an actress, and I use the term loosely, named Connie Mason. Connie was a Playboy model, a Playboy playmate. And I remember Herschel saying that, you know, if you took the key out of Connie's back, you weren't sure if she was going to be able to move or talk. I mean, she was extremely, she was extremely wooden. She, acting was not one of her talents. She always kind of held her, she always kind of had her arms up like she was cold. I mean, she never, I guess she never really knew her lines. She was, she just wasn't born for acting. She was a pretty, she's a pretty model. And, and that was kind of the caliber of people that were in Herschel's films. But that didn't, that just seemed to add to the campiness. I mean, if you look at Blood Feast, for example, which is his best known film, that's really the film that everybody thinks of when they think of him. The makeup is crazy. It almost looks like a, like a community theater production, except when you get to the gore, the gore is really pretty realistic. I mean, it's pretty realistic. Oh, yeah. So, yes. I, I can't imagine what it was like to go into a movie theater in the early 1960s. You're right. I mean, if Psycho was shocking, which it was in its day, and you really don't see any blood, in, barely any blood in Psycho, what must Blood Feast have been like for, for people who didn't know what to expect? It must have been shocking. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to witness some scenes from the next attraction to play this theater. This picture, truly one of the most unusual ever filmed, contains scenes which under no circumstances should be viewed by anyone with a heart condition or anyone who is easily upset. We urgently recommend that if you are such a person or the parent of a young or impressionable child now in attendance, that you and the child leave the auditorium for the next 90 seconds. I read somewhere that Psycho actually was sort of the inspiration behind Blood Feast yeah. because he wasn't he kind of like disappointed that you saw the beginning of what was, you know, to be like a stabbing scene. And then you only saw the, you know, the after part. You never saw anything in between. Yeah, that's well, that's funny to me because I would because actually, you know, Psycho showed the first flushing toilet. It showed a lot of things that had not been seen in film. And you do see you know, in that scene, you do see the knife going across the woman's body and so on and so forth. But yes, it's even then, even at that point, it was still not gory. It was still not explicit. Right. I also caught um, an interview with him or I saw an interview where he explained that he had to go to some lab to create that much blood. I mean, now, you know, you think of the Halloween store or whatever, and you go there and there's fake blood, right. of course, not by the bucket loads, but there's fake blood. So they had to go and actually create something that looked like blood by the masses. And he said that it was very hard to clean off. Mm -hmm. So what they had to do was shoot all these bloody scenes last because they couldn't get it out of their hair, right. out of their skin. Right. It was terrible, right. probably even toxic. Who knows? You know what I mean? Yeah. 
And well, and his films really paved the way. I mean, if you think about it, a little bit, just a few years after this was Night of the Living Dead, which was another independent film, very small, not in Florida. It was filmed up in Pennsylvania, but it was, you know, that was gory certainly on its own, but it's sort of like Herschel Gordon Lewis and his group of Gormeisters really kind of paved the way, opened the doors for that kind of filmmaking. When you look at something like Night of the Living Dead, which it did pave the way for, Night of the Living Dead is very gory, but there's some really good acting in it. It's really genuinely yeah. scary. Um, it's got a good plot. Herschel sort of made all of that possible. And, you know, you do have to tip your hat to these guys who were really our first independent filmmakers. I mean, they were doing this all on their own with no studio help and um, made a lot of future films, better films possible with the work that they did. Yeah, it, it was, I think I read that it was done, it was shot, I don't know, four days or something, all in Miami, yeah. and it was $25,000 or something. Yeah, very, very low budget. And yeah, the, I have the I have a book here in front of me uh, that talks about it. The budget was $25,000. It has the lowest of production values. Cheap set, uneven yeah. lighting. But as we said, the gore had never been, like that had never been seen before. So that was just shocking to people. And then when they did um, 2000 Maniacs, that was actually filmed up in St. Cloud. It's actually a better film. It's a better story because it kind of based on Brigadoon, if you remember that musical about a, a town that kind of materializes once every hundred years, well, that's the same thing that happens, uh, but it's a lot more gruesome, obviously, than, than Brigadoon. But, um, but the enthusiasm with which Herschel approached his work, I'll never forget that, uh, that symposium I held with him at the community college. He answered everybody's questions, and we were showing these crazy clips from his films, and he, he obviously took a lot of pride in it. And he was a really nice guy. He really, yeah. he was very proud of what he had done. So he was really proud of his contribution to film. And he and he was, you know, he was ahead of his time. He, was. he definitely was ahead of, especially back then with like very little special effects, you know? I mean, to be able to portray this, a tongue coming out of someone's yeah. mouth, yeah. Or, which I also heard, where did that tongue come from? I heard that it was, was it a it sheep's was a, tongue? I think it was a sheep. Yes, I remember this. It was a sheep's tongue and it was not a fresh sheep's tongue. It had to be preserved with Lysol or something like that. And it actually had to go in the woman's mouth. So if you could imagine how absolutely gross that was to just have that thing anywhere near you, let alone have it in your mouth. Those actors, you know, they were not compensated adequately for the amount of yeah. agony they went yeah. through on these films. <laughs> exactly. Especially if you can't wash that stuff oh. out. You know what I mean? Oh, gosh. He also started, like, in the beginning, he started with something called Nudie Cuties that was previous to the gore. That was also something new, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. There's a lot, well, that was, again, the 50, I think we think of porno, quote unquote, films as having really started being somewhat recent. I mean, there were porno films back in the 1800s, you know, the earliest days of filmmaking. There were always those sort of porno loops or nudie loops or that kind of thing. Or little, little like peep little show peep stuff. Little peep show stuff. But no, but there, I mean, I've seen, believe it or not, I once went, I was on a trip to Europe and I went to, um, oh, what's the town? Amsterdam. And they had a sex museum 
right there in the middle of town. I mean, you're just walking down the street and, oh, here's a sex museum. Oh, here you go. How could I resist? I hadn't gone into the sex museum. No, you can't resist. And there was film. I remember seeing film clips and film loops from, you know, the early 1900s where people are nude, maybe not having complete sex, you know what I'm talking about, but they had, they had, they weren't clearly doing the act of love. So, you know, that's been going on for a long time, but in the 1960s, you really started getting, 50s and 60s, really started getting into the nudies and were, you know, at the beginning, they were kind of innocent. Yeah, it was just showing a lot of nude women, but you know, that led to probably the most famous porno film of all time, Deep Throat, which was also filmed in Miami. Yes, it was. You know, there was a very thriving kind of underground film community in South Florida in the 60s and 70s. So, you know, for for good or for bad, it broke a lot of ground. Yeah, no, there's a lot of history here with filmmaking. I hope filmmaking returns to Florida because it's made a lot of important contributions. Yes. Okay, Caroline, well, thank you so much for your time. And we look forward to having you back to talk more about Florida on film. Thanks for having me. I love talking about it. That was Caroline Brader-Watts talking about Florida's movie-making history and the master of gore, Herschel Gordon Lewis. From cult classics to box office hits, next we talk with an award-winning filmmaker with Miami roots. I'm speaking with Andrew Hevia. He's a producer, director, and an award-winning filmmaker. He co-produced the three-time Academy Award-winning film Moonlight. The film depicts three defining chapters in the life of Chiron, a young black man growing up in Miami. <laughs> Why are you looking at me like that for? What, man? Come on, you just drove down here? Yeah. Who is you, Sharon? Come on, son, try not to remember. Try to forget all those times. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you're gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. You won't tell him why the other boys kick his ass all the time. What's wrong? I'm good. No. I just seen good. And you ain't it. Remember the last time I saw you? Listen. To who, Ma? Huh? To you? Who is you, man? I ain't seen you in like a decade. It's not what I expected. What did you expect? This film is so artistic, very unconventional, from the use of the classical music to the lighting, the moving camera shots, 
and the wonderfully talented cast, it was really refreshing to see something out of the norm of, you know, your traditional storytelling. Tell me how you became involved with this film. I had the great fortune of going to high school in Miami at a place called New World School of the Arts, which uh, is incidentally where Terrell McCraney, who wrote the play Moonlight is Based On, also went. So I'd known about Terrell and known Terrell for for years. He was already, you know, even in high school, already building reputation as, as like a, a really sharp writer. And then after I graduated high school, I went to the film school at Florida State University, which incidentally is where Barry Jenkins, who directed Moonlight, is where Barry Jenkins went. Barry also a couple years ahead of me, but in a very similar way, had a reputation. So what would happen when I was in film school, every time I would see a good student film made by, by a classmate or, a, or an alum, you know, you talk about it. Oh, did you, did you see, you know, whatever movie this is? And someone would say, oh, yeah, I love that movie. Or have you seen this one? And anytime I'd say I found, I found it, I found the perfect short film, someone would always step in and say, no, you haven't. You haven't seen Barry's movies. <laughs> <laughs> so years later, I end up living in San Francisco, working uh, as an intern at a company while uh, a group of classmates and, and former former alums from uh, Florida State Film School are in San Francisco making a feature. And that feature is a, is a micro-budget movie called Medicine for Melancholy. It's produced by a friend of mine, someone I went to film school with, a woman named Sherry Salter, and it's written and directed by Barry Jenkins, Barry's first feature. And that movie is happening in the same time I'm living there, and they're you know, alums from my school, a friend of mine is making it, so I am hyper aware of everything going on with that movie. You know, I, I try to visit set, I try to learn, you know, how they figured out this magic trick to like go from film student to filmmaker. Yeah. So I meet Barry, like actually meet him in the process of him making this movie and become very aware of, you know, the way he's approaching work and what he's interested in. And it's, it's fascinating to me because it's, I had a tendency as a young filmmaker to fixate on the technical aspect. And Barry was, was much more interested in telling a story about the world that reflected it and explored it and questioned it. Film was just a way for him to do that. And I learned that Barry was from Miami and he was making this movie in San Francisco. And for me, something didn't work about that. I was like, you know, he should be making uh -huh. this in Miami. Mm -hmm. I, I personally was, was just really in love with the idea of telling stories about Miami. I thought Miami was a fascinating place. So years later, I'm, end up, I'm back in Miami and I'm working at WLRN trying to figure out how to do this thing where you go from film student to filmmaker. And I'm working on a couple of projects that are in Miami, about Miami, for Miami. And uh, I end up spending more time with Terrell McCraney. He sends me a copy of an early draft of a screenplay about his experience growing up in Miami, loosely based on his own life. And it, but it was a world I knew very little about, but was fascinated by it because I knew so little about it. It was like, if you tell me that in Liberty City, there's this whole other universe that I'm completely unfamiliar with, and it's only yeah. four yes. miles from where our office was, I, I basically, I knew there was one way to make this movie, and that was if Barry Jenkins was interested. And I thought it could be the movie he makes in Miami. So yeah. I brought the Terrell story to, uh, to Barry and his producing partner, Adela Romanski. And um, a bunch of years passed, but eventually that movie became Moonlight. It's, I'm, I'm telling you, I loved it. I love that it is so Miami-centric, that it represents such different cultures and the locations from Liberty City to South Beach. It, it's, you're right. It's like two different worlds. It just really painted this authentic portrait of our community um, that was going to be one of my questions was, was that one of the goals of this film? But you're the you're saying you are the one that actually brought that 
to Barry's attention that it had to be in Miami to make it truly authentic? I mean, I was on a I was on a seven year crusade to get Barry to make a movie in Miami. <laughs> okay. And, okay. And we'd made we'd actually been able to make a short film together in Miami, and that was the moment where I was like, "Hey, I've got a feature." Like Jerome wrote a feature of me. We should try that. Um, yeah. I'm what what was great is Barry absolutely understood the potential, saw it right away. Uh, I remember when he right. first read it and wrote back like, "Hey, I read this. Here's what I think." And his first thoughts were like, there's real potential here. And the opportunity to show Miami was something he was very aware of. Barry and Terrell definitely saw and had an opportunity to tell a story about Liberty City and about the African-American community in Miami and to tell a story that was deeply personal to them and their experience in a way that far surpassed my greater, my greater ambitions. Like what a privilege to, to, to sit on their shoulder and watch as they work because I learned so much about, about the world, not just filmmaking. Yeah. How much local talent did you use? Basically, the the name actors were obviously flown right. in. Pretty much everyone right. else was local. It, you know, I mean, like the truth is, Ashton Sanders and um, Jarrell Jerome, the the two actors from the middle section, um, yeah, were relatively new at the time, but they were flown in, and they have since gone on to become like I, I was. Uh, I saw a billboard with Ashton Sanders the other day. He was a he's a model. And Jarrell won a won an Emmy recently, so like they're both doing incredible work. Yeah, um, yeah. But the younger actors, uh, Alex and Jaden, the, the two young boys, uh, were local. We found them through a acting teacher named Tanisha Seidel, who incidentally is also a New World School of the Arts uh, alum. Yeah. What do you love about filming in Florida? I mean, other that you were able to come back to your old stomping ground. I don't know. I mean, it's a great question. I love the idea that. In, in Miami specifically, uh, having grown up there, having done a lot of, of scrappy, low-budget, independent kind of projects there, it's my backyard in that sense. I know, I know who to call. If I need a thing, I, I can get to the person who, who owns it. And if not me, it's, it's my friend's cousin who, who knows the guy. That kind of resource and network and community is, is extraordinary. It means you can pull off things that you, you wouldn't be allowed in another place or you wouldn't be able to if you don't have that kind of access. So like the support of organizations like Oolite or like uh, Young Arts made um, a lot of projects possible that I don't think I could have pulled off in another city. Since you mentioned Oolite, let's let's move into that. I was going to say, do you feel we have a strong arts community here, and how is that arts community being supported with so, uh, organizations like Oolite? So interestingly, uh, in in my while I was living in Miami, I've actually made a couple of documentaries about this topic about the arts community and about the institutional support for the art community while at WLRN I made two films one was a documentary called Rising Tide a story of Miami artists and the other one right. was called yeah. Tallgrass City both of which are about mostly the visual art community but I, I think Miami has a vibrant visual art community especially considering the size of the city and sort of its, its newness um, it's amazing how developed it is from the museums like the Pam to the art collections like the Margulies collection or the Rubel collection like there's a really strong visual art community and film as a subset of visual art, I think is, yeah. is small, but uh, pretty powerful. Um, on topic, there is a, a young filmmaker named um, Keisha Ray Witherspoon, who yesterday, maybe might've been Monday, was announced as uh, one of the top new faces of independent film. Uh, filmmaker Magazine puts out a list of the top 25 new faces every year, and it's an exclusive list. Um, you know, that's, that's a nationwide filmmaker list, and Keisha made it this year. And uh, her short film, Tea, 
played Berlin, the Berlin Film Festival, one of the most prestigious international festivals in the world. He played last year. A year before that, a filmmaker named Farron Humes won at Berlin. Extraordinary things coming out of a very small group of people, which is, I think, incredible. You feel that you got a good foundation, but now you are in L.A., so tell us what you're working on in L.A. After the, the Moonlight experience, a, a lot of interesting opportunities came up that, that I owe to that movie, absolutely. Eventually, I started working with a company called Fabula, and Fabula is a Chilean company founded uh, by two brothers, uh, a producer, Juan de Dios, and his brother, Pablo Lorraine. After 15 years of success in Latin America, they decided to open an American office. I'm currently running the L.A. office. We focus okay. on Latin American things, things that definitely harken back to my, my Miami experience, a very bilingual uh, company, uh, and our projects tend to focus with that sort of sensibility. So now I'm uh, an executive producer of the company, and we, you know, I'm overseeing a bunch of film and TV projects that, given our current state of the world, uh, you know, we're focusing more on development than production. But um, it's, a, it's an awesome opportunity to, to not only learn the years of Hollywood, the larger system at, at play, but also to influence it and, um, you know, help make choices that put interesting projects out there in the world. Do you feel that people who go to school here, they don't necessarily stay here? They wind up all going to L.A.? Like, I wonder why. Okay. Well, what's funny, so what's funny is one of the reasons I was in Miami in order to connect those dots was because I kind of stubbornly refused to, to go right to L.A. I graduated film school and everyone I know moved to L.A. or New York. And I did not think I had anything to offer that city as a filmmaker with dreams. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, just a film student who had an idea of making movies, but hadn't done anything. So I felt like I'm just going to go um, and and be pushed around by 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 uh, by the tides. You know, I'll need I'll need to make money, so I'll have to get a job. And in Miami, I was able to go to a base of support, focus on making work, and through actually through the job I had at WLRN, was able to support myself so that I could um, experiment and grow and sort of incubate away from. The, the industry until I was ready to to show up, basically. Yeah, which I think is a smart re- move. You've done you've done excellent. It, it, yeah. In hindsight, it worked. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. that, was a good, that was a good fifteen year period where you start to wonder, like, good life choices. And then it, you know, the hail mary landed. So clearly, it was the right throw. You keep mentioning WLRN, but you know, for those that that don't really know that much about me, except for that I'm this self-proclaimed weirdo on this podcast, you know, my roots are in public television at WLRN, which is actually where we met. And Andrew, when I met you, I you know, I thought you were like all of fifteen, but you were very bright, and and you you know you you brought some wonderful stuff to the table, and it was just a great time back then. I can't really remember in my mind what we physically worked on together. Can you? Martin Luther King documentary. Oh, that one. Yes. Yes. Footprints through Florida. Yeah. That was, that was distributed statewide. So we we Um, did a bunch of segments. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's definitely a good, it's definitely a good place to work because you can do so many things. You could, you know, you were hired as an editor, but you were able to make these films and then bring them to the table. You know, it's, you know, you can get your hands into a bunch of different areas of of television without being tied down to one one right. task or one thing. Where can somebody go to uh, get information on some of the projects you're working on? Uh, so I actually have a website. It's my name. It's andrewhevia.com. If you want to know about the company projects, uh, I think the biggest 
news uh, right now is that my my boss Pablo is directing a film um, with Kristen Stewart about Princess Diana. Pretty exciting project uh, that we'll start filming in, in the new year. Everybody's fascinated with the royal family. Yeah, and I think we have a really interesting way into that story, so it's not gonna it's not gonna be the expected one, but. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, follow me on Twitter. My name, yeah. again, my name at Twitter, you'll find uh, the state of the world from, from my weird little uh, point of view on it. <laughs> okay, Andrew. Well, um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us on the SoFlo Weird Show, and good luck to you. And anything new that you have, please bring it back to us. We'll do an update. When are you coming back to Florida? Oh, you know, I've, I've been trying to go back... Uh, before the world ended and now i don't know <laughs> okay well definitely but, give us a call when you get here absolutely it was wonderful to talk to you all right thank you all right take care that was filmmaker producer and director andrew hevia if you'd like to know more about andrew's latest projects we'll have links to his website at soflowweird.com Next, we feature a brief history of entertainment in Seminole County, Florida, which is presented in Charlie Carlson's book, Showbiz. All of Central Florida's history began on the banks of Lake Monroe. Now that's a pretty bold statement, but it's true. Whether we're talking about prehistoric mammoths roaming a marshy trail that later became the St. John's River, or Central Florida agriculture, it all began in what is now Seminole County. This includes the history of entertainment. From operas and colossal circuses with big tops seating 10,000 spectators to the first theme park, Sanford was once Central Florida's amusement and entertainment capital. Whether it was a human fly daring to climb the courthouse building, silent movie houses, or Orange County's first fairs, people flocked to Sanford to be amazed, mesmerized, and entertained. This is a partial list of movie and TV shows that were filmed in Sanford and Seminole County. Cameras actually rolled for the first time in 1923. The earliest known film to have been made in Sanford, for which firm documentation has been found, was a 1923 promotional-type film produced by the Kiwanis Club to attract visitors to Sanford. It was first shown at the Mullane Theater and later in Alabama and Georgia. Actually, this film did not have a title, but since it showed Sanford's celery fields, streets, buildings, train station, ice plant, and selected prominent businessmen, people simply tagged it as the Sanford movie. In 1966, there was a movie called Johnny Tiger by Universal Pictures with Chad Everett filmed in Seminole County. A major part was filmed in the Wakaiva area and around the I-4 bridge on the Volusia County side of the St. Johns River. In 1979-80, a movie called It Fell from the Sky. The title was later changed to Alien Dead. This 89-minute low-budget sci-fi movie was filmed in Oviedo and Kelly Park. In the movie, the Oviedo Drugstore and a car with a Seminole County license plate can be seen. Many locals were used in this production, including Sanford's own American Bluegrass Express appearing as a country band in the movie. It has been shown on television and with dubbed-in sound for foreign markets. In 1989 to 1992, the TV show The Adventures of Superboy, Sanford was portrayed as Smallville, USA in seven episodes. 
1990, the movie Days of Thunder by Paramount Pictures. In 1991, My Girl by Columbia Pictures with Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Macaulay Culkin. Sanford is portrayed in the movie as a Pennsylvania town. In 1992, the movie Passenger 57 by Warner Brothers, which features Wesley Snipes. Exterior scenes were filmed at the Sanford Orlando International Airport. Also in 1992, Wilder Napalm with Deborah Winger, Dennis Quaid, and Jim Varney. Four weeks of filming at the Sanford Shopping Center. A full-size carnival was set up in the parking lot, and on a vacant lot, the movie company built a full-scale mock-up of a miniature golf course. General Hutchinson Parkway, near Big Tree Park, was used for a country road. This movie holds the record in Sanford for using the most pyrotechnics. In 1994, Heavens to Betsy, which was a television sitcom with Dolly Parton. Two hours of scene filming was done on Myrtle Avenue. In 1995, Dead Presidents, which was a top-grossing movie filmed in part at Lee Ranch in Oviedo. And in 2003, the movie Monster, which is the story about the serial killer Eileen Warnos, filmed in Sanford, Castleberry, Daytona, Orlando, and Kissimmee. And my personal favorite. In 2008, one segment of WLRN's original production, Weird Florida Roads Less Traveled, was filmed at Big Tree Park, and certain road scenes were shot in East Seminole County only to be matched by the sequel in 2013, Weird Florida on the Road Again, for which I was the producer and Charlie Carlson and his canine sidekick were our travel guides. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody. Okay, that's a wrap. <laughs>